Revelation chapter 2, um, we find Jesus does something very unique. He dictates um, some letters to some churches. Uh, several years ago, I um, was going to teach through the book of Colossians at the ring and um, was trying to convey the fact that uh, the Colossians is a letter and how you know Paul had, had been there and helped, you know, uh, they were very aware of who Paul was and stuff like that. And so to get a letter from Paul was a big deal. And so I just thought it would be funny uh, in a little way, but more like trying to get my point across um, to write like it, that if we got a letter from someone that we like had tremendous respect for um, as the ring, like if somebody wrote us a letter just encouraging us and all this kind of stuff. And um, so I, uh, I, faked a letter um, from a guy named Louis Giglio, who uh, is in charge of like passion conferences and stuff. And I took the intro to Colossians and basically wrote a letter um, in the same, with the same like emotional vibe and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as if Louis had written us a letter and I didn't tell anybody. And so I just get up and I'm like, hey, I got this letter and I showed it to everybody. It was on passion uh, stationery and uh, it was handwritten and signed just like him. And so I read this letter, and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, everybody's bugging out, you know. And, um, and then I just kind of casually mentioned that it what didn't really happen, but, uh, but I was like, but think about all the emotions that, just, you know, that you just have. Think about how encouraged you were and challenged and how it pumped you up. You know, that's how it would have made them feel, right? And it was just like just stone, stone faces. Could have heard a you know, cricket chirp, pin drop, whatever. Um, and then I got, you know, fussed at later on by some people. And some people thought it was hilarious and others didn't know how to feel about it, you know. Um, I was like, at least I didn't let it, like, drag on for, like, seven weeks and then come back and tell you. And I told him right away, not even at the end of the sermon, like, right away. Um, anyway, um, so to get a letter from Paul, would, or to get a letter from Louis Giglio would be one thing. To get a letter from Paul, the apostle, would be another thing. To get a letter from Jesus, completely different. All right, whole other level. And so, uh, Revelation starts in chapter 1, and Jesus is basically, um, like, exactly uh, saying who he is, and just letting it all be known. And in chapter 2, he um, dictates these letters to the seven different churches in Asia Minor. And um, last couple of weeks, we've been talking about um, what it means to walk in love, and love that is uh, self-sacrificing, love that is, um, that is the way that Jesus loved people. And that that is what we as Christians are called to. That that is, is the thing we are to push for, that we are to work toward. Um, that that is the one thing that is going to continue on after we are all dead. Um, and once Jesus comes back, there, will, there won't be a need for hope. There won't be a need for faith. There won't be a need for spiritual gifts. There won't need, be a need for all these things. The, the thing that will continue on uh, for eternity is love. Because God is love. The Trinity is love. And that is like the most excellent way to live, as Paul describes it. So we kind of went to 1 Corinthians 13 and looked at love is patient and kind and, and doesn't boast and all those kinds of things. And, and then, then we backed up a little bit in the chapter last week and, and looked at um, how you can have um, 
the most flashy spiritual gift there is. Like you can, you can have um, like the gift in your mind that means that you are it spiritually, and without love it doesn't matter. Um, you can have all the answers to all the theological issues out there. You can, have, um, you can be one of those spiritual giants in the church that just lives completely by faith. You can be the biggest giver. You can even be a martyr. And without love, all those things are completely meaningless. And tonight, we're, we're going to kind of wrap that up and try to figure out, okay, how do I get from the way I look now, the way my life looks right now, the level of, of love that is... Um, I don't know, that describes me. Um, how do I get from where I am to that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of deal? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, he, he says um, all that stuff, and he, just, he says, if I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. And the thing about a clanging cymbal is it's incredibly distracting. Um, you may have noticed that one of our guitar players tonight, I won't name who it is, um, hit quite a few wrong notes in the music. I'm just saying. Um, and if you were to ask him, he'd probably say, I don't play guitar. I play the bass. So I'm just, you know, whatever. Um, but those wrong notes that you hear, they're distracting, aren't they? There's this really great clip, and I think um, everybody should go online and try to find it. It's so great. Um, it's at North Point Community Church. You may have heard it. And uh, it starts off the, you know, that, the song, um, oh gosh, what's the name of the song? Uh, what is it? Holy is the Lord. So the guy starts off, he's like, we stand and lift up our hands, but the joy, you know, and it's like just the guy in his acoustic, and the guy leading it, like, is, you know, he's like just into it, whatever, and it comes apart, and together we sing, and then like the whole band just comes in and like hits real loud. Well, the leader had like probably, had like put on his capo and forgotten to take it off, so he starts off in the completely wrong key, but the rest of the band has no idea, so when they're like, together with it, and it's, with as much confidence as you've ever heard, they just crush this first note. And they're in completely different keys. And then they try to keep going, and it's just horrible. Um, and it's, it's really funny. And I think it's on the Internet because it's funny, and they're, they're okay with it. Um, but that is a life lived with all these great things going on, but without love. It's distracting. A clanging cymbal is distracting. Wrong notes played by me, distracting. So that's the thing, is you can, you can live this life, you can be giving, you can have all this faith, you can do all this stuff, but you're distracting from what is really important, and that is the glory of God. And I don't think any of us want to be a distracting force in the Ring Community Church, or in the Christian community of Baton Rouge and, and beyond. None of us want to be, we don't want to be those people who are doing everything without love, and so we're distracting everybody from the glory of God, and we're trying to bring glory to ourselves. We don't want to be that. So how do you get from maybe being that to 1 Corinthians 13? Well, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes this letter to this church in Ephesus. Let's look at it. Starting in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay? Sounds kind of weird. That comes from chapter 1. This is Jesus basically laying out his credentials so that they'll know this is not a letter from Paul. This is from Jesus. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All right? So he has some good things to say about this church. And you know, from time to time, like I'll, I'll see people or I'll get emails from people and they'll say, hey, how's the ring? And I guess, you know, my perspective as the pastor is going to be different from other people's perspective. And I usually say, well, you know, narrow down the question a little bit, you know, um, because it's hard to just give a broad stroke answer. Uh, if they want a broad stroke, I'll be like, great. That's my broad stroke right there. Um, but it kind of depends on what you're talking about and different things. And, and we just, we're a, we're a living organism. And so we continue to to grow and to struggle at times and, you know, whatever. Um, and so I can't imagine having, like, an evaluation of a church done by Jesus himself like this, you know. And for Jesus himself to say, look, I've seen your work. I've seen you patiently enduring, I've, which is inward. I've seen you toiling, which is outward. Um, I've seen you hanging in there for my name's sake. Um, what he's talking about is at, in, in Ephesus, Ephesus was a, was a big city, probably like 200,000, 250,000 people. I mean, huge. Um, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And one of the things um, was, was the worship of Rome. And, and not only of Rome, but also of the emperor. And so um, they would require people, whenever they like, paid taxes and at different points, they would, they would pay their tax, but then they would have to declare that Caesar is Lord. And so everybody said, Caesar is Lord. You know, here's my money. Or Caesar is Lord. And that was forced upon people. And so the Christians in Ephesus, they refused to say that Caesar is Lord because Caesar is not Lord. And um, so they would, would say Jesus is Lord. And that did not go over very well. And so there was, there was persecution uh, because they refused to worship Caesar and they would blaspheme the name of Caesar by inserting the name of Christ. So sometimes when you see people baptized, um, a part of the, the baptism that they will do is... Um, They'll say, what is your testimony? And they'll say, Jesus is Lord. And that's where that comes from. It's, it's centuries old. Um, that is the most basic testimony that we have. And so he's saying, look, I, I know that you have stood your ground for my namesake. I acknowledge that. And so all this encouragement that comes. And then um, he says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's, that's tough. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. There's a lot of discussion about this verse and, and what it means. And, you know, they're talking about love for each other. They're talking about love for God. Um, what, you know, what does it mean? And most, most uh, scholars say, you know what? If he wanted to get more specific, he would have. So it's really probably both because those things are synonymous. Um, love is love. And so love for God and love for people, that's all going to be one big blob. And so... Um, Jesus is, is saying the, the love that exists in your church now is not what it once was. And you're talking about like the, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of those who were the founders of this church. And so probably Jesus is kind of looking at the lifespan of this church and, and saying, you know, in, when you first started, and if you, read, if you read Paul's letter, if you read Acts like 19 and 20, if you read uh, 1 Timothy um, Timothy was a pastor here in Ephesus. I mean, there was just so much momentum um, when they first started. And so now Jesus is saying, look, you don't love the way that you used to. You've abandoned that. 
In effect, he's saying, look, your work and, and, how, and how you're, um, you're not putting up with people who come in to claim, claim to be apostles and they're not, um, you, like, that, is, that is awesome. And the fact that you are saying Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord and you're standing strong and facing things and you're making it, like, I see that and that's good. But it's not done with the same passion, the same love, the same drive that it once was. I read one commentary that said it's almost like, like, these, uh, like, like this generation um, was more like, they were more like the custodians in the, in the, of, of the church. Like they were like the guardians and they were just kind of trying to maintain things and keep things going the way that someone is kind of the custodian of a, of a family piece of land or something like that. Keeping the grass cut, you know, all that kind of stuff, keeping the neighbors happy, but not a whole lot of investment in it. And so, Jesus could have stopped there, but he's Jesus, and he usually doesn't. Um, verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. He says, remember from where you've fallen. So it's like, okay, look back at what the love in this church once was like and, and see the digression. And then repent of that and then start doing things the way that you used to do it. Start doing things with love for God, for each other, whatever. And then he tacks on that last part. He says, and if you don't, you're going to stop being a church. See, a loveless church is, is not a joke to Jesus. It's very serious. To the point where he says, I'd rather you not be a church than be a church that does not have love. That's strong. It does not get much stronger than that. And so, I don't, I'm not at all here saying, folks, we're, this is us. I don't think that that's us. But I think we all agree we don't want to become that. We don't want to just maintain things and then let the love just continually digress. But we're, just, we're still cutting the grass. You know, we're still uh, keeping the neighbors happy. We're maintaining things. We're, we're, we're guarding the estate. Meanwhile, we love less and less and less and less. And don't even realize it. Turn back to Ephesians 3. See, when Jesus says, uh, you need to remember where you've fallen and repent and do whatever, the good news about that situation is he's saying, look, this is, this is fixable. There's nothing worse than getting like a diagnosis from a doctor or a mechanic or uh, um, you know, you're someone inspecting your house or whatever when they tell you, like, look, there is not a thing that we can do. That's horrible. So Jesus says, look, these things are great. This is the one thing I have against you, and this is how you fix it. It's repairable, but you need to, you need to get on it. And so it's encouraging. It might hurt a little bit, but it's encouraging because it says, look, there's, there's a way to fix this. And see, Paul, um, in Ephesians 3, uh, he prays this prayer for them because Paul recognizes um, what is going on in this church, and this is a time when there, was, there were, were some negative things, but there's just a lot of good stuff going and Paul knew, he knew what was important. 
He knew that holding on to doctrine, okay, that's important. Um, you know, serving people, like, that is important. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Having order in your worship services, that is important. Um, all these things are important, but he knew, he knew the undercurrent. He knew the foundation. He knew what was important. This is his prayer. Look at verse 14. We studied this in community groups and all this, and ironically, this leads into chapter 4 and 5, which is really kind of how we got here in the first place. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, being rooted and grounded in love, um, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's what he's praying for them that they would know His love both with their mind and with their experiences in their heart. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's an interesting, interesting phrase. Because it's like, okay, how do, you, how do you pray that people understand something that goes beyond knowledge? It's like, have you ever like, tried to think like what was before God? Like before God created stuff? And you're like, it's just God. Like, yeah, but like, where was he? Like in a house or was it? Well, he hadn't made houses yet. So was he outside? Well, he hadn't made outside yet. Or was he in a box? Well, he hadn't made boxes yet, you know? And it's like, it was just, just God. Like he just existed, you know, where? In space? Well, he hadn't made space yet, you know? And like, you just keep going. And it's like one of those things that at some point you have to say, I just can't know more than that. He existed. He was before everything. There's something about the love of Christ that has, has a very similar effect, but yet he's telling them to try and, and grasp it, to continue to try and go more and more and more. And what's cool about it is it is, in a sense, like the carrot dangling before the horse, you know? Like the more you understand, it still goes past your knowledge. And so then you understand more, and it still goes past your knowledge. And so in one sense, it's this never-ending quest, this journey, to understand more and more and more the depths of love that God has and how with this incredible love, He has loved us. But that's what Paul's praying. It's like, I want you just to continually want more and more and more. And it's not this hopeless thing like the, like, you know, I say it's the carrot dangling out in front, but maybe, maybe it's not, you know, maybe because the horse gets the carrot, but it's almost like once he gets a carrot, it's like, oh, there's another carrot. Because we understand, and sometimes we have these moments um, when we're together corporately, or maybe, maybe you hear a song somewhere, maybe you have time in the Word, and like you are just emotional because you feel cherished and loved by God. And to know that even in that moment when you think, I've never understood it like this, there's still miles and miles and miles of width and height. It's awesome. 
And that's what he's praying for this church. He's praying this for them because he knows this is the key to everything. Upon this, you build your doctrinal whatevers and you build your times to go serve people and you build your programs and you disciple and the church gets organized and comes together in worship, but it's all, it's all built on this. Now, one more flip in the Bible, okay? Go to 1 John chapter 4. Here is, is how we get there. And there's not like the six L's of love or anything that's about to come your way. There's no outline, nothing clever, all right? If you're hoping for a magic formula, it's, I'm a, you're not going to get one. In, um, in Matthew 22, they asked Jesus, what, what's the most important thing? What are the greatest commandments? And he says, love God, love people. Love God and love what is important to God, which would be people. And I, um, I think that um, still being like relatively young in the pastoral game, um, not that it's a game, but you know what I mean, um, I think that there are times when um, I've wanted so desperately to uh, like unpack um, some like bad understandings that all of us have had, myself being uh, definitely one of them. Um, and the idea that, I mean, I grew up a lot, I listened to a lot of uh, special musics in church growing up, and uh, maybe you can relate. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, basically, like, you would have, like, a call to worship hymn, and then, like, a prayer, and then, um, you know, maybe something, uh, maybe, like, a, a choir special or something, and you'd sing another hymn or two, and then the deacons would come, and there would be the offering, and the organist would play, or there'd be, like, a spectacular piano solo or something like that. And then there was a, what was called special music that would go right before the sermon. And it was usually like a solo or maybe like a trio, you know, a little point of grace thing going on or something. Um, and, and I have just heard the song like, a, like so many times. It was called, when, when He Was on the Cross, I Was on His Mind. And that mindset of uh, that, that we are the apple of His eye, that we are the center of God's universe, that He died for you... Um, I don't think that theologically that is the starting point. I believe that, that Jesus died on the cross for the glory of God first and foremost. Um, and the way that God is glorified is by the way that that love has been applied to us. And so He loves us, and the ways that He loves us glorify God. So I think when Jesus was on the cross, I mean, honestly, I think He was in a lot of pain. So I don't think he was like, look at Josh Causey, look at that dude. He was making this all worth it. <laughs> I don't think that that was going through his mind. Um, and so I, I think maybe I've swung so far into trying to destroy that, that idea that um, we're the center of the universe that maybe I don't teach enough the love of God for us. And I apologize for that. And I'm repent of that. I'm trying to turn and go the other direction. Because um, while I do believe that Jesus died for the glory of God, I believe that the way God is glorified is in the way that He loves us. And the greatest demonstration of that love was the way that Jesus lived His life, which landed Him on the cross where He died. And then He rose again. 
And so in Matthew 22, when they say, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love God and love what's important to God, which is people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, I believe is the starting point for us. We say, all right, I want commandment number one, I want to love God and I want to love people. I believe this is where it starts. Verse 19 says this, we love because He first loved us. Just that simple. We love because He first loved us. That is how you get from where you are to where you want to be. That's how you learn to love well. That's how you grow in commandment number one. We love because He first loved us. Look, at, look up at verse uh, 10. Same chapter. It says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just means that He's the one that took away the wrath of God. That we are the bearers of sin and God has to destroy sin because He's holy. He has to do something about injustice and things that are sinful and against Him. And so as the carriers of sin, that wrath was poured out on us, was aimed at us. Jesus basically stepped in and took the wrath on our behalf. That's why I think when He was on the cross, He wasn't thinking about me. I think He was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole lot of wrath being poured out right now. I think He was thinking, oh my gosh, I've never been separated from the Father before. I've never, had sin, I've never had sin in my body, but it is being on me, the sins of humanity. Because I've never, never seen wrath like this. That is the greatest act of love. That's how we keep from becoming a loveless church. That's how you keep from having a loveless life. You want to fix your marriage? That's where you start. You want to love your kids more, more biblically, more in a more Christ-like way? That's where you start. You want to be a more Christ-like friend to the people that are close to you? That's where you start. And see, we have an enemy, the devil, and he wants to destroy lives and destroy churches. I think he destroys lives through lying, and I think he destroys churches by attacking the love that exists. Whether it's love for God or love for people, that's how he destroys a church. You watch a church that's on its last leg, that's what's happened. They've been cutting the grass, keeping the neighbors happy, and maintaining the organization of the church, and they've neglected the fact that the church is an organism that is alive. So, we love because He loved us first. So we fill our minds with the truth of what He has done for us. You get into the Word and you start reading Paul and Peter and Timothy and these heroes of the faith and they're always talking about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. Why was that so important to them? Because that is the greatest demonstration 
of love that has ever been, um, has ever happened. That is the key to everything. That's where the glory of the Lord originates for us. And lives that glorify Him, that's where it starts. And so if you're serious about this, and in the last couple of weeks you really felt God stirring you up and trying to push you forward, this needs to be a part of what your daily life looks like. You fill your mind with the truth of these Scriptures. You get in there and you read the story, and you read the letters, and you read Paul's prayers, and you fill your mind with that truth, and you find songs you like that are a part of that truth, and you put them on a playlist, and you listen to them. Or, uh, you, I mean, there's just so many practical things that you can do, and it all depends on your personality and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is the same for every one of us. We love because He loved us first. So we focus and we saturate our, ourselves intentionally on the way that He's loved us. And that transforms the way that we love people. That's why, that's why I think people love communion services so much. Because you have sat through this time and you've just been immersed in the truth of this story and you walk out and you're like, man, life is completely different. That's why people like Easter. And churches that preach the truth, that's why people like church. So here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to sing songs about this. We're going to um, corporately walk out what we've talked about tonight. Knowing that what we do corporately can be, the same principles can be walked out privately. So maybe, maybe this is a turning point for us. So the band's going to come back up. Y'all go ahead and come on. And we're just going to go for it. And I know, you know, like I said, it's warm and whatever, but it'll be all right. So let's pursue this tonight. Let's just see what God does in us. What if, what if this is a turning point for you personally, for us as a church? What if tonight becomes a reference point when years down the road we can say, yeah, remember that night when we did this or we sang this song and we talked about this? This idea has been transformational for us. What if 1 John 4, um, 19 like, becomes it? Who knows? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we know that you love us. That is a, a truth that we are um, very o- aware of. And God, at times it really, ha- it really affects us and has such a deep impact. And God, at other times I think it's something we just kind of take for granted. And for that, Father, we, we repent. So God, tonight as we sing these songs and we we focus our minds, um, I pray, Father, that you will um, that you'll do something among us. God, that you'll help us to grasp how high and how wide and how deep and how long your love is for us. And even though it goes so far beyond our knowledge, God, help us tonight to grasp more than we've already grasped.